Hey everyone and welcome to the 67th edition of DF Direct Weekly. It is indeed our weekly show where we talk about the latest gaming and technology news, hence the name. Joining me to discuss this week's lineup of topics, first of all, John Linneman. Rich, how you doing? I'm ready to talk. <laughs> ready to talk. And uh, of course, Alex Battaglia. Hey, Rich, John, I'm ripping and rearing to talk about this week's topics. I'm ripping very and rearing. Yes, I don't, I don't know what that means necessarily, but I'm doing it. It's alliteration. That's a strong statement of intent, so let's get straight to it. Uh, first news topic this week, um, PlayStation Plus, the rollout is now complete. We took a look at the service when it was operating in its debut in Asia, since rolled out to Japan, the US. Now it is in uh, the UK and Europe. And well, as we know, three tiers, the essential tier, which is essentially what PlayStation Plus has always been an extra tier, which offers a big bunch of extra games. And uh, yeah, the volume of titles there is quite astonishing. But the point of contention has always been the premium tier and its offerings of classic games. And John, what's the story there? I think everything has pretty much uh, proceeded as we have foreseen, to quote Palpatine. Yeah. So, well, first of all, how do you think their essential compares to the Eurogamer essential? <laughs> oh boy. Well, yeah, Eurogamer Essential is sort of the best of the best, and uh, their Essential is like the bare minimum. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> what you already had. So, yeah, they launched the service in Europe, and guess what? PAL versions. Zero surprise. But then there was a twist to the story. They basically came out and officially announced that. They are planning to implement the NTSC versions into regions that had PAL versions on the service. And uh, honestly, what can I say? I mean, that that's exactly what we wanted to hear about the service, right? Like, that's fantastic news. Like, obviously, I think launching them as PAL versions in the first place wasn't a great thing. But, you know, that bridge has already been crossed. And the fact that they're essentially owning up to it and saying, OK, this is what we're going to do moving forward. That's fantastic news. I don't think there's a timetable yet on that, but you know, it doesn't solve every issue with the emulation that we pointed out, and we still don't know what this means for things like PS2 games, I guess. But uh, this this is a this is a good thing. Yeah, it is. There's no doubt about it. I mean, that's pretty much what we asked for when we saw that this issue was going to be raising its ugly head once again, which is essentially just you know, if you want to offer these multi-language versions that are only available in in the PAL territory fine but also offer the ntsc alternatives as well so you've got a choice of actually having the game as the developer intended which uh, is somewhat crucial to the experience and uh, yeah it's obviously welcome news i guess uh the cynic in me is still saying how come this happened in the first place uh, because it's nothing new right when the playstation 2 classics on ps4 rolled out it was the same complaint and there was Possibly not the same level of um, response to it at the time, but you know there was, uh, I wouldn't say outrage, but certainly a critique of, of the offering back then. And basically not much was done about it. And then the same mistake made again years later. And only now are we actually seeing a, a commitment to actually get those versions out there. So, I mean, it's good news but it's reactive. They weren't, you know, they didn't take a proactive stance on sorting that out. Rich, uh, I'll be honest. I actually think that with these issues more and more, there is just this level of misunderstanding, not 
fully grasping why things are what they are uh it seems like this seems obvious to us right uh but over and over we're seeing releases like this we're seeing retro collections of stuff where developers just make these strange choices or or clearly don't understand why things are the way they are and that sounds silly to say it but uh you know it just keeps happening and i i you know <laughs> Like for instance, uh, I, I don't want to get into this one, of course, but I'm I'm doing a video on Sonic Origins, lots of weirdness with it. But at, at its most basic level, the screen is filtered using bilinear filtering. It's blurry. The pixel art is not preserved properly. This was solved in Sonic Mania. This was never a problem. Why is this a problem here? Like, why do you release things like that? It's in the same book is this it seems obvious to us and you'd think it would be obvious to the people doing the work but they keep making these errors and i do think it's the same stuff with this pal thing where they're just like whoever's managing the project thinks you know oh well we'll just match the regions that sounds logical right and i i suspect there's a lot of people that don't even understand why uh the pal versions are problematic in this case right like it's that has to be that. Like, why else does this keep happening? <laughs> yeah, it is almost like um, <laughs> the platform holders are operating in a in a kind of alternate timeline where fifty hertz was actually a good thing. <laughs> um, I just don't quite understand how it's it, why it's happening. Um, simply because it's nothing new. We knew at the time that it wasn't great. You know, anybody who compared them. The issue though is that fifty hertz itself isn't inherently bad the big problem and these aren't great conversions necessarily well it is when the games are built at 60 hertz no you're right they're not it doesn't have to be inherently bad right you can have good pal conversions not that that's what we have here the problem is is even a good pal conversion isn't going to work if you're displaying a 50 hertz thing within a 60 hertz container that's the problem in a nutshell right there so uh, they kind of ruin the fluidity of the games as a result I'm also just a bit confused why, well, not confused, just I'm just wondering why there isn't an extra step gone to make a multi-language version of games appear in NTSC 60 hertz versions, because, um, you know, like, there's a lot of games on PC that are not released, for example, with certain language support, and you can go online and find language patches made by users, you can find, uh, like, whole, like, audio files dragged and dropped in to make things like Russian or German when they weren't before. And those are just community done things. And if they're if they're really interested in getting language support, why not go an extra the extra the extra little bit there? I, that would be cool. But that stuff typically doesn't work out very well when companies get involved with the community. But I think the big issue is that while I was thinking, oh, this is language related, when you actually look at these PAL games that they released, most of them are actually still English only. Oh my so god! They, so they don't even oh. have multi-language support. What's the point? Uh, well, yeah, I still think, and I'm I'm going to say it again, the retro community, you know, individuals in some cases are pulling together um, packages that are way better than what the platform holders are doing, and something has got to change there. It's just remarkable the gulf there in, in quality. Um, but yeah, I just want to stress that um, this is the premium tier we're talking about and the classic games in the premium tier. Um, but there is actually the extra tier as well. And this is essentially a deluge. 
<laughs> of PlayStation 4 and PlayStation 5 games. I mean, Assassin's Creed Valhalla, Control Ultimate Edition, Death Stranding. Holy crap, there's so much here. Demon's Souls Remake. Um, I mean, if you're just getting into PlayStation 5, for example, uh, Guardians of the Galaxy is on there. Um, uh, Marvel Spider-Man Miles Morales. This subscription is actually looking really good. Returnal is there. Um, so yeah, there's there's a ton of great stuff on on that sort of uh, uh, extra tier, which offers you a bunch of games. PlayStation Four version has, uh, of, well, if you've got a PlayStation Four, there's still value there. I mean, the list of games there is even more ginormous. I'm seeing here that uh, Bubsy, the Woolly Strike Pack, is on there, which means uh, day one for Audie, obviously. Uh, and uh, Crisis Remastered. I mean, there's huge amount of value in those lower tiers. It's always been the premium one, which kind of makes it even worse, right? Because they're charging a premium for something that isn't quite right. I don't know, but you know, it's there, it's out there. Uh, extra tier certainly looks great from my perspective. Um, the right noises are being made for premium and fingers crossed we'll see some progress there, not just in terms of the release of um, 60 Hertz, titles but also in actually improving the emulator and if you've not seen John's critique on that please do check it out. Okay second news story this week Nintendo emerged from hiding with a new Nintendo Direct which was a huge reveal 24 minutes worth of footage of the new Xenoblade uh, Chronicles 3. Um, now this series has always been kind of like at the cutting edge of technology when it comes to uh, Nintendo platforms, which are typically not defined by their power envelopes, so to speak. Um, John, you're going to be taking a look at this for us when it comes to doing the full tech review, but based on this 24 minute reveal, uh, what are your first thoughts? I mean, I thought it looked uh, really, really impressive. And actually I was beginning to question whether it was actually running on the Switch, but wow, it looks really good, right? Yeah, I think it's pretty clear by now that Monolith Soft is one of the best developers on the Switch in terms of pushing technology. Like, they're out here delivering these gigantic-scale open-world RPGs with just, like, a ton happening in terms of, like, cinematics and animation work and just scale. Uh, and I love some of their techniques, their motion blur technique they use during the cutscenes. You see that a lot in this Direct. But... You know, I guess this is, um, I, it, it made me think about what's happening with the Switch lately, where I feel like more and more we're seeing new releases come out for this thing, and they're just failing to hit the mark. You know what I mean? Like, poor image quality, bad frame rates, you know, just issues that it feels like it's getting worse, and I suspect that comes down to just this, the amount of work required to get good performance out of the Switch is probably more significant and we're not seeing it as often so i feel like this is a breath of fresh air because uh not only does it look great it looks like they've actually addressed a lot of the issues that we saw in the second game which was their first switch project uh xenoblade chronicles 2 was notorious for not so great image quality shall we say especially in the portable mode though i don't know if we've seen any portable footage in this specifically but their solution to anti-aliasing and and clarity of the image was not great and the games were very fuzzy and low res they used like a very aggressive dynamic resolution scaling system and although the game was beautiful it was let down by that 
So based on what we're seeing in this direct, provided it is all, you know, legit footage from the hardware, uh, it looks to be a gigantic improvement in that regard. They've really improved things. So, John, the question is, is Xenoblade Chronicles 3 too big for Switch? Yeah. I would say no. <laughs> too big. <laughs> Clearly not. I mean, the, the, you, I don't know how familiar you guys are with these games. I'm but familiar with the Wii, the Wii game or whatever. I just love the the idea of like worlds built on top of like giant mecha that are fighting and you're like basically like microscopic beings living on these these gigantic fighting galactic creatures. It's just uh it's it's wild the scope that they go for. Uh and it's it's cool to see. Um and yeah, this this looks to be their most impressive yet and I suspect this will be their last regular Switch project. I would, I would think, I mean, what do you think? I mean, I can't imagine that whatever they do next is still going to be another big game for the original Switch, right? It does strain credibility simply because we're approaching the sixth birthday of the, of the original Switch. And uh, obviously the, uh, the Super Switch is, is lurking in the wings somewhere. And uh, it would make sense for them to be moving on to the next one, right? But of course, I mean, these guys seemingly have assisted with a lot of Switch stuff over the years. I think they were involved with Breath of the Wild to some degree. They've helped out with other projects. They seem to be sort of a one of Nintendo's key studios in terms of just pushing cutting-edge technology on the platform uh, for the hardware target. This trailer, I mean, I watched uh, a good portion of it before we came on air here, and uh, the detail level just looked really, really impressive. They really pushed the Switch here. And uh, I can't wait to see more. I guess from my perspective, I think you raised it earlier, John, the question is about the portable side of things because they just about made it work as a docked experience uh, with their prior title, but it kind of went to pot a bit in the, the portable. <laughs> went to pot. That's, really, a, that's a good way to put it, actually. <laughs> yeah. That's I, it. I mean, actually... it was perfectly serviceable, right? But it it just didn't look like really yeah it was just like i think like the image quality was one of the biggest concerns there like john was one it was uh, it was earlier. the classic painterly aesthetic yeah, yeah. <laughs> what do you think alex i'm curious based on this trailer it it almost looks to me like they're doing some sort of temporal upsampling techniques this time it, it has to be I, I mean just like i mean unfortunately the trailer is released at 1080p and you're 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 limited to uh Everything out there at 1080p is just so compressed these days. Um, so that's why I was watching it, and I was just thinking, like, oh, am I actually seeing motion blur and gameplay here? Because that wasn't in the old, other game, right? Um, but it's hard to tell if it's motion blur and gameplay or if it's just tons of compression. Uh, <laughs> uh, that's one thing I was thinking about. But, yeah, like, there's a number of spots where the camera's sitting still. And, you know, John's talking about, like, this, like, large world they have going on there with the mecha uh, backdrops, essentially, that the terrain. And this surprisingly... Uh, pixel perfect look to that. I'm assuming we're looking at dock play here. Uh, it did look pretty 1080p esque um, from those moments. So I'd imagine that's what they're doing because if they're increasing fidelity here, uh, the chances are that it is probably not native 1080p always, even in dock play. Uh, the one thing I'm actually kind of curious about is whether performance will hold up um, because, you know, like I think a lot of open world games on Switch. Um, they definitely do uh, have a more variable frame rate uh, at times. Uh, and I'm just curious about, because like, this game has like a lot of, like you fight like singular monsters in a field with uh, a number of companions and things like that. And the particle effects can ramp up pretty heavily there 
and the effects work. And I'm just curious if like performance will hold in those moments as well too, or if they maybe have a really good dynamic res system, uh, kind of like they had before. Um, so I, I'm just curious about those things. I, I, I've, I've only actually played the original game emulated to, to a bit. I've never actually played uh, this one. I kind of did. I don't know if people in the audience agree with me with this, but I feel like they changed art styles between that first and um, the, the and I felt like uh, I don't know. There's like some there's like some disconnect between the character rendering type and the world rendering type. Like the characters feel much more cartoony than the world they inhabit, and I don't think that was a thing in the original game. Maybe just because it was technologically limited or something like that. I feel like the original game was pretty weak in terms of character models. To be honest, targeting open world on the Wii is like if you go back and look at their prior games, like the Zeno games on PlayStation Two, um, those actually look significantly better in terms of character rendering but you know they're not open world right so i think that was kind of the difference there uh and they went for very low polygon characters on wii was with a lot of painterly textures and obviously with this different art style they wanted to go for an anime-ish look but the character geometry is much higher yeah, that's that's actually very true. So, I mean, I'll, I'll be excited to see what John says about this when it does come out. When is it releasing, actually? July, was it July or August? Oh, or? wow. So it is it's, really, really close. I think it's okay. pretty soon. Um, okay, yeah. So... It says like, 29th of July here. Okay, okay wow. yeah. So in July. So we're going to be doing a deep dive on that one, I suspect, John. Are you, you're going to be handling that, I, I believe. Yeah, look, look, looking forward to doing it. And it'll be something I... I uh, one of the last things I do before I'm gone for like some weeks so this one is actually really interesting forza horizon 5 uh, received a new update uh, this week and on the pc side they have actually added a new anti-aliasing option temporal aa and uh, this was actually something which um we asked for in our pc tech review of uh, forza horizon 5 and alex you were the asker as such uh, so you must be must be pretty happy about this you've you taken a look at it i have taken a look at it i don't have the footage as of yet but i'm going to be making it right afterwards but i did basically the basic already just for myself without recording like loading up the game with msa loading up the game with ta a bit annoying um uh, to do that because a lot some of the options in uh forza horizon require you to like leave the game uh so it is a little bit annoying once again to change the options but uh when you do look at it I tried it out at 4K. I may also make a recording for this at 1080p just to show off the differences in that. Uh, most people say that TA doesn't work as well as low, at lower resolutions, but oddly enough, in their in their uh, post uh, describing TAA, they thought it worked better at lower resolutions. I'm not sure why they said that. Uh, in my opinion, this is something that the game really, really required, uh, and most modern games really require. Uh, regardless of the fast speeds that you can go at in Forza Horizon, which are very, very fast, uh, you know, that technically means TAA is not going to be as effective or could artifact more. Uh, but it's worth it to take that hit in slight artifacting uh, occasionally, I think, to actually have a very stable image. And that's something that the original Forza Horizon 5 and even 4 and 3 before that uh, really didn't have. Uh, MSAA is pretty good in its default form for certain things, but these are new games. They're using like PDR. There's a lot of like specular surfaces. There's trees, bushes, vegetation everywhere uh, that is not being treated with their form of MSAA. And so you would like go through a jungle or you'd, I mean, just really anything that wasn't 
uh, just like straight geometry would be pretty aliased, I always felt, in these games, even at 4K. Uh, so I am actually very happy with what I saw already. Uh, I'm going to be sending over some video to Audi here so it can show a little bit of what I'm talking about on screen. Um, and I think this is... It's a little bit sad that it's only out for PC right now. Uh, I think also maybe Xbox could benefit from this uh, quite well, like that 60 FPS mode. Uh, could perhaps benefit from it quite well, maybe even as an option in their uh, 30 FPS mode there. I think it would look really good there. Um, I'm just actually curious about what this means like for the future, because if they listened to community there, uh, asking for TAA, uh, will they also listen to the community in regards to, a lot of people have wanted DLSS in this game ever since it launched too. They now technically have the hook-ins for that with TAA being in the game. Or, you know, you know, you know, bring it out into the future. What does this mean for Forza Motorsport? And what does this mean for future Forza Horizon games? Will they instead maybe focus on using TAA? Um, I would actually kind of prefer that. And I think um, a lot of other developers making car games these days, you know, racing games, sim games, a lot of them have TAA now and don't always have MSAA. Uh, or if they do, it's kind of expensive. Uh, here, it's actually not too expensive, as I talked about in my review. Um, I actually do prefer the resolve of TAA these these days in games. So I hope maybe this bodes well for the future for the Forza franchise on all platforms, not just on PC. I actually would like to see this as an option on console as well. Well, well you took a look at that uh, Forza Motorsport trailer, uh, which is the next next game. Was, that, was there any conclusions to draw on anti-aliasing there? I mean, historically, they have stuck to MSAA. Sim simply because they want those pristine lines on the cars. You're getting really pristine lines, though, with TA, though. That's the thing, you know? It is pretty pristine. And that trailer, uh, that Forza Motorsport trailer, um, it was really hard to be conclusive about that because it's so early and it was not really clear what we were looking at initially. But, you know, there was some weird signs in there that anti-aliasing is maybe different this time around. And I would really prefer if they had a, a good TAA there in Forza Motorsport. But at the same time, it didn't look like, whatever whatever we saw in that Forza Motorsport trailer did not look like the resolve that we're seeing here, I would say, with Forza Horizon. So, I mean, they are two different teams. They share tech maybe only to a certain degree. So, hard to say. I would love them to bring this to the Xbox as well. I don't see why they couldn't do that. That would be a nice option to add in. Um, yeah, at least on the series. X and S, perhaps. I guess it would <laughs> perhaps throw a spanner in the works in terms of their train budgeting, which is like quite meticulously done. Uh, I guess it would depend on what the cost of the TAA is. You know, they have DRS in there, right? And so I feel like, I don't know, I'd be curious to see what they could do, because we don't know what, you're right, we don't know the actual cost of the TAA, but it seems reasonable enough like i'd imagine like... it seems actually surprisingly similar to 4s uh, four times msaa i did the bench and it seemed oh, very cool. similar and uh i mean their, their their msaa was already pretty cheap based upon what their rendering was doing but it also was missing so many lines like so many edges and so many so much aliasing that i feel like the the trade-off there is worth it if even if it is this, uh, a similar um performance cost. I think it would make the uh, performance mode on Xbox look significantly better uh, because, you know, when the when the resolution does drop a little bit, it's more noticeable when you're just using MSAA, right? 
TIA would really smooth that out. It should look really great. And to be clear, it replaces MSAA completely, right? So that's what I'm pretty sure it does, yes. Um, which is, I mean, it would be kind of nice to um, have them both on at the same time. Mix and time. match, yeah. <laughs> Mix and match. I mean, a lot of games have done that in the past. Uh, you know, one thing that I actually hope, I mean, we're just talking about future stuff here, but I really don't think they need to be targeting native resolution. And I hope this is a move in that direction of not targeting native. I'm talking about consoles here, not on PC. PCs just target what you want. But uh, on console, like, I feel like they're, they could improve the visuals in certain directions even more if they were okay with like 1440p-esque internal image quality. Um, and then maybe upsampling that. I feel like that would be the way to take the series forward even further than it is now. So last minute addition here, John literally held up recording in order to add this one to the docket. Um, essentially, he just said uh, that there's a Klonoa demo out that's got issues and he's not happy about it. Uh, I know nothing about it beyond that. I don't know so John, either. you're going to have to clue us in here. Klonoa is being re-released. The first two games, is being they're being recreated uh, for modern platforms. It's the Fantasy Reverie collection, I think, or series. And I'm very happy about that. Uh, but they put out a demo this week. It's actually fine on the other main platforms, but the Switch version is specifically the one I, I'm wow. absolutely baffled by it. So that was a, that was a big sigh. It was because <laughs> I love these games, and this is the best chance we have at seeing more Klonoa. And and I feel like they're potentially hurting the situation by releasing what seems to be a subpar Switch version. So, uh, it does seem to have been developed i think by the company that's doing that did the katamari re-roll um which was not bad they're they're taking a similar approach here though where it is built in unity uh and they're doing a lot of new assets and changes to it and you know the changes are whatever i don't like all of them like they removed the cell shading from klonoa 2 they changed some of like the water and effects and such in a way that looks a little bit less what i love but it's still nice looking that's not the problem but on switch it doesn't run at a proper 60 frames per second and i actually think that releasing that in that condition is is actually insulting to the original playstation game and the developers and I say that because we know that targeting or delivering a 60 FPS 3D platform game on the PlayStation 1 was a very tall order. It's something not many games or developers were ever able to achieve. Few attempted it. Uh, Namco did it with Klonoa, and it was a defining feature of it. It was very smooth performance, super quick loading. It felt amazing and responsive. To go all these years later and bring it back and to deliver something that can't match the PlayStation original in terms of performance, no matter what the visuals are, the fact that it falls short, it runs worse than PlayStation, the loading times between rooms and areas are about two to three times longer than PS1 running off of an what? optical disc. Optical uh, disc? Oh my god. And That's they're very bad. short on PlayStation, by the way. <laughs> that game was so beautifully optimized on the PlayStation 1, a work of art. So to come to this, and it, it applies to Klonoa 2 as well, which on PlayStation 2, of course, perfect 60 FPS, as you'd expect. Uh, and it just doesn't run right. And I, I mean, I don't know what you guys think, but I, I don't think that's acceptable. And I think that they've made some errors along the way here that that 
I don't know anything about their development process, but from what I've what I've learned talking to developers, especially building like large like Unity or Unreal projects on the Switch, if you want 60 FPS on the Switch, the Switch has to be the primary target, right? Right. That's the this, uh, situation with like uh, Ukulele and the Impossible Layer. That's right. When they built that game, they they targeted Switch first and foremost. And that game, by the way, is very visually comparable to a Klonoa kind of thing in terms of complexity, I'd say. Uh, and yeah, they're like, okay, Switch is the target. We get 60 on Switch. We have to be maintaining 60 on Switch. The other versions then are their gravy, basically. And that's exactly what happens. And clearly here, this feels like a project that wasn't keeping that platform in mind necessarily. Uh, and they've just hit a point where they can't get the performance they need. And yeah, it's just, it's it's kind of a mess. You can at least disable the tutorials, by the way, which... That was something that absolutely drove me up the wall in the videos, how everything now has these tutorial windows that pop up. And the first level is just packed with like the action freezes, big box pops up and says, here's how you do this action. Which again, the original games were designed in such a way that you should learn that organically. You don't need to be told what to do, I think. This this to me reeks of like, okay, well, focus groups say that some people aren't able to figure stuff out. And I, I don't like that approach, but at least you can turn them off um so yeah i just wanted to get that out there just because it was kind of bothering me on that front but again you know it looks like the other versions from what i tested at least are perfectly fine they look they look good even with the changes they look they look great they play great uh i think it's going to be awesome on there it's just you know switch should be better Mm. and switch is kind of like the platform which is you'd think the sort of ideal home for these kind of exactly uh, that's the thing and it's just, mm, it's a real bummer because there, you can tell a lot of work was poured into this otherwise. And it's just, I'm puzzled by this. And, may, you know, again, though, this is a pre-release demo. So I guess it's worth keeping that in mind. It's not like it's running at 30 frames per second. It's more like bouncing between 50 and 60 all the time, right? But just that instability doesn't feel very pleasant. <laughs> I guess we're going to have to reserve judgment for final code, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. But um, it is a bit telling if this one is slightly dodgy and the others are absolutely fine. Uh, I guess that's the sort of key concern there, isn't it? So this one came out of nowhere and it's actually uh, quite cute and quite fascinating. Obviously, the PlayStation uh, 5, as you can see right here, it is an absolutely ginormous unit uh, a remarkably large console. So it was with a lot of interest that we saw that the YouTube channel DIY Perks had essentially created its own PlayStation 5 Slim. Uh, Alex, do you want to pick up the story there? Uh, sure, yeah. This one is basically ripping out the the entire like internals of the uh, PlayStation 5 there, including the heatsink fan assembly, which um, Rich has looked at before. Uh, as well as Gamers Nexus and things like that. And I think the conclusions are that like the size and the uh, the exact design of the PlayStation 5 is a bit um, form-following function. Like, it is big because it kind of needs to be big. It's, uh, you know, it's like a big chip in there, and there's that big SSD uh, controller and things like that. And the, and the RAM, too, is also going to get hot. So it makes sense that it was pretty big. Uh, so the question is, without a die shrink, which is the usual way you get a slim console, like the the size of the physical system on a chip there, that chip, it gets smaller. It starts uh, being able to run c- cooler with less voltage and things like that. 
without doing that, how do you actually make Slim Console? And that's the, this is essentially where you're going the PC route. <laughs> it, is, it is basically like rebuilding a PC in a separate chassis. Um, unfortunately, the laws of thermodynamics have their limits as the video, uh, or shows off. Uh, it's, it is really small and it is actually what I would really prefer. Like, I actually think the Series S is like the perfect new console in terms of size and like, uh, it's, it's actually the best looking one. It's actually a console. It's, it's a console as you would, uh, uh actually recognize a console. <laughs> yeah. Like, that's like, I, I have that. Oh my God. The, like, the Series S and the PlayStation 5 are just dueling here, uh, for space. Um, and it actually has that new size, and I think they actually did it rather artfully in terms of design and things like that. Um, but the limitation there is it is water-cooled, uh, and they have to break out the, um, like, the power supply and the, uh, the radiator and, like, everything that you would associate with water cooling into a separate device, like a power brick, essentially, on the side. And it's not small. It is not small. Um, there obviously you could probably get smaller reservoirs, but then you'd be like worrying about heat because this is really hot. So I think in the end, it's actually really cool. And it just shows, even though we're not happy with the PlayStation 5's visual design, it may actually be like right at the limits of like thermals and, uh, power and what they can reasonably do. And then like, you know, like the, the, the waves on it are just like aesthetics at that point. So I think... Uh, I bet I can't actually wait for the slim version of the PlayStation 5, uh, because if it looks anything like this one, we're in for something really cool there. <laughs> That's the kind of issue, right? Because it's no, it's, it, the console is slim, but then tucked away behind the desk is this gigantic cooling solution and power supply. I'm surprised you didn't put in the Xbox One second GPU into there into there as well <laughs> and um and i've got to take my hat off to the you know to diy perks for the construction of it where he used um like 300 dollars worth of copper for the heat plates which is like the cost of the console so much <laughs> it's a bit wasteful <laughs> not like feasible yeah not I, at I, I just think uh i think on the flip side it actually serves to highlight the um the, the challenges in cooling the PlayStation 5, um, the, you know, to, to, to better it and to do it in a slim design, this extreme solution is required to get the job done. And uh, the temperature improvements seem to be uh, significant based on As these water cooling. Yeah, yeah exactly. I mean, as with water cooling, you'd hope it is. I mean, I think you could probably design a slim using less, ex, you know, extreme measures that would be more in line with the original thermals. Right. And yes. then it maybe wouldn't have this semi awkward situation with all the <laughs> the radiator and the power supply yeah. inside. Maybe they, you could do they that. can definitely make it once the die shrink is here, once they've got a smaller process for the for the SOC, then they can make a more traditional slim style console. But I still think it will be probably on the larger side compared to fire slim consoles. But um, you quite like this as a uh, as a kind of artistic statement, really, didn't you, John? Yeah, I thought it was. It's a neat looking box. It's very very minimalist, but I, I actually like the design and the the choice he did there. Uh, but it really demonstrates how volatile and you know tricky the cooling can be because he in the video, the first attempt at it, his giant power supply water cooling brick thing fell and it blocked one of the intakes, I think. Uh, and, and the cost died. Yeah, it caused it to overheat and kill the motherboard basically. 
This is so, so brutal. Had, so you had yeah. to swap in another PS5 board, and I'm just like, you know, it, again, it just shows like how riding that line, and you, you, this would be a tough consumer product to release, right? Like, if somebody was thinking like, yeah, let's do it, let's do a console where, you know, because I actually thought about that at first. It's like, you know, you look at like the PS2 Slim or something, right? Super tiny little machine, and then the power brick is an external brick, uh, or even you know Xbox One, whatever. But uh it's like what if you did a water cooling power supply <laughs> where you have these big chunky cables running to the console and you got the cooling and the power all in this one unit but then you have to worry about cooling that thing and who wants to put that behind your tv right so th there's potential danger there as well but i i, I love the the form and design it looked very industrial i actually think that they could have made a smaller playstation 5 but it would have been excessively noisy <laughs> um it's it's quiet i mean that's the the triumph of both of the the higher end uh consoles this generation is that you don't notice them in the way that you did with the playstation 4 and the, and the playstation 4 pro specifically where they didn't really seem to be uh, conducive to a nice living room environment those fans were just like kind of crazy so you know it's kind of a gigantic solution that they came <laughs> to arrive on to in order in order to get a quiet console out there there but was there one is. caveat though is like he had to do it with the digital unit yeah that's so the no size. optical drive and that would have obviously massively increased the, the size. size yeah yeah absolutely but yeah that was a really interesting project and if you've not seen the video i do highly recommend checking it out and uh, with that let's move on to our final news topic of the week a bit sad, this one, mm. because a prospective follow-up to uh, what John said is actually one of the greatest games of the last generation uh, is not happening. It was canned. Uh, John, do you want to clue us in on this one? Vicarious Visions did the Tony Hawk's Pro Skater 1 and 2 remake, and it was the best thing in the Tony Hawk series for more than a decade. You know, the series had kind of disappeared for a while, but the last entries and some of the stuff they were doing weren't great. But this was a true return to form. Uh, sort of revitalizing the franchise. And as far as I understood it, it was very successful numbers-wise. Yeah, it, it was like possibly the most successful game in series history at, at release in terms of sales. Uh, but I fear these days there's a real problem with the way these large companies operate where a success is not enough, right? There's a difference between success and mega success, making billions and they want the billions they want the huge numbers they want these gigantic like earth-shattering successes this little moderate to still very successful project seems like it didn't make activision happy enough because vicarious visions was working on as we've learned tony hawk 3 and 4 remastered sort of or whatever you want to call it basically doing the same sort of work on those games uh, that they did for one and two and three and four are also phenomenal games three is widely considered to be the best in the series in fact um and that got scrapped because of the vicarious visions uh merger situation i guess they they merged with uh blizzard right yeah blizzard act As, yeah they were folded into blizzard and they kind of became another <sighs> support studio if you will which this this is really, this is one of the problems I think I've had with Activision for a while is like they reward companies building successful games by 
immediately throwing them to either the Call of Duty salt mines or uh, the Blizzard dungeon, and and then they're just stuck there, and then you know it, it kills their identity. Uh, the creative people of those companies likely would like to move on at that point, and it's just another great developer just dead, thrown into the situation is what it feels like, and it's 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 a serious bummer, and I don't know what this what this holds with the Microsoft merger and it's probably all just wishful thinking, but it's, this is the kind of situation I would like to see improved uh, with them being taken over by Microsoft essentially, where potentially they could allow situate like games like this to continue and be made and not throw all of these developers into these support studio roles. I mean, there has been uh, some noises from Phil Spencer that, you know, he's looking to resurrect some of the older franchises that Activision have. But, you know, these companies are like gigantic corporate juggernauts where affecting actual change isn't something that you just do with a you know, click of the fingers. It takes years to reposition resources. So, yes, I mean, I'd hope to see that those older games do get a bit of love. Uh, and they're perfect for game Games Pass, right? Yeah, Alex? right. <laughs> um, but yeah, that is a bit disappointing that we wouldn't get to see more of uh, Tony Hawk, especially since, uh, well, apparently you're saying it was quite successful, Joel, which... Yeah, that's um, what I've read. Wow. It was, I mean, it was a success. And they did awesome next-gen versions, too. Like, uh-huh. playing that game at 120 frames per second, it's, it's sublime. Before we go on to support a QA, and um, I think we want to talk about uh, one or two of the projects that we are uh, uh, sort of working on at the moment. Uh, let's start with DF Retro, John, because there's some interesting projects going on there, right? Yeah, so there's some there's some stuff coming up. Uh, obviously, the next DF Retro will happen, and I'll announce that at some point. Um, but uh, I'm going to be away for a lot of July, so we'll see what happens there. But some of that will get worked on while I'm away, actually. Uh, but we do have two little things coming up soon. Uh, first of all, you know, just for the patrons, we have the Retro Pickups, another one that Audie and I just shot this week with some cool stuff on there. But the big one is that uh, yesterday we had the chance to do a full two and a half hour filmed interview and discussion with the legendary Randy Linden. Uh, If you're not familiar with Randy's work, he's one of those genius programmers, like well-versed in in the world of assembly language and also machine code, really, uh, who built his career on doing the impossible, seemingly impossible. So like he built Dragon's Lair for the Amiga running from floppy disks, which was a Laserdisc game. He developed Doom for the Super NES. It was recently revealed that he had been working on a prototype of Quake for the Game Boy Advance, which is just wild. And Modern Vintage Gamer has a great video on that, by the way, so check that out. Uh, And then he also architected Bleem, which was the PlayStation emulator in development in the late 90s. And as we talk about on there, like the idea of emulating PlayStation seems quaint these days, but at that time there wasn't documentation for this. There wasn't really examples of this happening. Any early attempts at PlayStation emulation during that era were so limited at the time. So this guy goes in, he, he, he's, he basically just starts to reverse engineer the system. He gets a book on the MIPS R3000 CPU and, just going through these unencrypted binaries on these disks and just figuring out like, what are these things calling? What are they doing on the hardware? And 
I, I can't even imagine just going through it that way at the time, right? Because just the, the lack of info and documentation on this, figuring all this out. Uh, he was a true trailblazer in that regard. And then, of course, he even managed to get Bleem on the Dreamcast uh, before Sony kind of put the boot down, unfortunately. But uh, it's it's such an interesting project that just really important to the legacy of like emulation and it's it's cool stuff and yeah we go into all of that and more and yeah, what a super nice guy it's super knowledgeable as well and he has a lot of cool examples too like he brought his his homemade gba dev kit and he talked about his homemade uh development board that they did for figuring out how to bring doom and over to the system because they didn't actually have official super fx development hardware or anything so it was all hacked together from a Star Fox cart and just just wild stuff that they were doing and i love it it's great well you know this kind of reminds me of the uh geforce 256 video you did which is to say that there's a lot of stories in the industry which um we kind of need the developers to come forward and talk about them otherwise they'll be lost forever and uh, that was you and Audi doing that uh, interview, right? Yep, exactly. Okay. I'm going to look forward to that. Speaking of Audi, uh, he gave me a heads up on Slack that he's bought a super rare CDI power supply. And uh, uh, yeah, apparently, uh, and, and unfortunately, it's being shipped to my house. So, so I suppose I'm going to have to look. I asked him if it's rare because nobody wants to power up the CDI. That seemed like the logical sort of conclusion there but no, that interview sounds absolutely terrific it went on for hours didn't it john yeah yeah and i think in the end the video will be around two and a half hours so and there's still so much more we could have talked about honestly uh he's just a fountain of information and it's it's great it's great love it i think these stories you know the, the these really important stories from the annals of development i mean if there's people that want to talk to us about this stuff I suspect the statute of limitations is, <laughs> is, uh, applies to a lot of it because <laughs> it's so far in the past now. But yeah, please do approach us and, you know, let's Absolutely. Talk. Just reach out anytime. Okay, let's move on to our final segment of the show. This is the supporter Q&A. This is where backers of the DF supporter program come forward every week to pose questions that we select uh, for inclusion on the show. And I'm going to kick off with this one from Techno Dan. With the mixed reaction to The Last of Us remake, do you think Naughty Dog could have given the game a better showing by showing gameplay comparisons instead of mostly cutscene comparisons? Since the cutscenes were originally pre-rendered, the difference isn't as noticeable as when comparing the actual real-time graphics. In addition, they could show the improved gameplay and accessibility features, the latter of which I feel could justify the remake for a lot of people. So. It's a really good point, right, John? But I guess the first thing I would say is that when a game is sort of reaching the end of development, it's going to be on shelves soon. There's actually a marketing campaign with lots of different beats. And maybe all of the stuff that Technodan is discussing here is just a little further along down the road of the marketing plan. What do you reckon? Yeah, I think that's probably the case. I, I feel like the one thing they could have done differently to really get the point across initially, though, is to clarify with people that what they were seeing on the PlayStation 3 side was a pre-rendered video, right? Because I don't think a lot of people actually are aware of that. You know, we've talked about it before, but I think people just assume that's what the game looks like, uh, but it's not. 
those were those were greatly enhanced over what the PlayStation 3 actually renders in that game. And they actually run consistently, which was not the case uh, on PS3 either. So I think if they had seen like, okay, real-time PS5 versus pre-rendered on PS3, that makes it much more of an impact. And that was that's a point of clarification I think they could have made. Yeah, I agree with John there. Um, but also, I think we all here also like when a game is shown with gameplay uh like when you see it the first time so you get like a sense of what it is not like i'm just really not into teasers and i'm just not into uh, cinematic showings because they can they can mean anything really um you know i think you can see that with like the way people got all super hyped about battlefield 24 to 2 when they showed off as like i had no feelings there we talked about it back then like this pre-rendered trailer with like people doing crazy stuff and having animations the game doesn't look like that and then the game comes out and it's like or the beta comes out and it's just like oh this is actually really bad so i don't think you like you're just like hype building then and i really and it hero slight backfire because like john was saying like the original ps3 version of the game well it didn't actually look like those those original pre-rendered cinematics so long story short i think i would really prefer like techno dan is mentioning here the, the, to show off a game the first time around with gameplay in there for sure i guess the question is how enhanced the gameplay is and to what extent the features of the last of us part two are actually going to be in the last of us part one and there's a lot of sort of hints uh, i mean oliver's video was was quite comprehensive about you know the stuff from the last of us part two that seems to have been injected into that and i do think they could make a lot more of the gameplay maybe that is to come in a forthcoming uh, marketing push pre-release but that's kind of what we want to see at this point right i guess from their perspective it was little more than a tease really to sort of um sort of lay the groundwork this game is coming it's coming pretty soon but you know this is your introduction to the game hopefully we will see more there um i think more tilu sort of... <laughs> yeah <laughs> Tilu to the max uh, next question. This one from Nolasco. My dudes. <laughs> this one is for John, I imagine. So, John, my dude, in these hard times of hard copies of certain games, is there any way to know if you are buying a hard copy of a game with no game in it beforehand? <laughs> I don't want to get a horrible surprise as when I got Halo Infinite. Thank you for your hard work. So yeah, let's explain the situation here, which is to say that games are being released on consoles, um, most specifically on Xbox Series machines, right? That don't actually have any Xbox Series code on them. Well, Halo is actually a little different than that because it has no code on it. N right? None at all? None. There's no game there. You cannot play Halo Infinite from that disc. So that, what, that's actually nothing, the issue, Nothing right? installs, right? Uh, it installs some data, but if you try to run it, it says it needs to connect to the internet to finish downloading it, uh, even on a regular Xbox One. That that was the issue, right? Like, it's true with a lot of Xbox games right now that are that use smart delivery. They often put the Xbox One version on the disc, and to actually play the series version, you do have to download the data, which is unfortunate, but still, technically, the game is on there. Uh, but with with situations like Halo, and I think Forza Horizon 5 as well, there is no game there. It's just some of the data, which is a bummer. Uh, unfortunately, in those cases, there's really no way to know for sure just from the packaging. It's something you kind of have to wait for people to find out the hard way. Uh, but in other cases, so this is actually not that uncommon on Switch. Um, 
I mean, it's not that common, I guess, but it does happen on Switch. The difference there is that all of the games where it's only a partial game, sometimes they have a cartridge with only some of the data, sometimes it's just a code in a box, but either way, Nintendo requires them to put a large banner on the packaging to say does not requires an internet connection to download the game so you know from the packaging that it for sure requires an extra download uh so nintendo has at least covered that so that's good um on playstation it's less rare on the the times when it happens it's usually is on the box but it's because it's a third party release i think where they do specify that and it would have also been specified on the xbox version but i don't think they've put out any first party games that i know of where the game itself isn't on the disc at all that's a that's a very new thing in this in this world uh so yeah i i think that's that's the key though I, all Microsoft has to do, if they're going to continue to do that, and I, I wish they would reconsider or release a version that doesn't have that limitation, uh, just needs to put a label on the box to make it very clear that what is in here is not playable without downloading something. Uh, Alaska's question. There's no way to know. <laughs> right now, really? there's really no way to know. It's a bit of a lottery, but generally you're fine on PlayStation. It's it's I think that it's basically smart delivery that's the issue for Microsoft, right? Where they have to uh, accommodate Xbox One and Series. The key there is I actually think once smart delivery goes away, and by that I mean cross-gen goes away, this problem should hopefully solve itself, right? For the most part. And we'll get the games that are just the Series X games on the disc each time because there's no reason to put Xbox One code on there. And there's no reason to put Xbox Series S code on there either because it has no disc drive. So it would only be Series X on the disc. So essentially we're waiting for the death of smart delivery and cross-gen. Once that happens, then the games should be complete on disc. And uh, that's great. I can't wait for that. And certainly, uh, I think we've stated this many times in the past, but in the case of titles like Forza Horizon 5 and uh, Halo Infinite, some sort of uh, definitive edition with all the DLCs and everything on there, you know, even if it was a limited release, physical would, would be the way forward there. There is one thing to note on the PlayStation side that people should be aware of. Uh, a lot of So some of the games have had the option to buy a ps4 version and then get the playstation 5 version and they do sometimes charge an upgrade fee which is just silly i think but like horizon was like this and people were like oh, i'll save money and buy the ps4 version but the thing to keep in mind there is that disc of course being the ps4 version only contains the ps4 version so the the ps5 version then is relegated to a digital download through your account so uh when when getting into that sort of upgrade situation I think it's best to look at which physical disc has the actual version that you want. If you care about those things, not everybody does. So, you know, let's move on to the next question. Uh, this one's from Tom Fasnage. Another one regarding a potential potential super switch, which has to be the name. Surely how possible do we surely um, how possible do we reckon it would be to have a dock that uses a high bandwidth interface like PCI Express and actually houses a high wattage GPU, 50 to 100 watts with sufficient cooling? I know Nintendo probably doesn't want to overly diverge and segment the game development process for docked slash portable games, but this seems entirely possible to me and would be attractive to quite a broad market. 
Delivering on the promise which has as a hybrid machine. What are the obstacles for this? Interconnect form factor over segmentation of games? Question mark, Alex? Uh, yes. The, uh, <laughs> the uh, biggest obstacle to this is Nintendo just being really cheap. Why would they spend all this money doing something that is optional uh, like all the time? I don't think that's the way they roll. I think they really want an SOC uh, and just one SOC, and that's it. And I don't think they would, uh, you know, contract NVIDIA to, you know, have a like a great interconnect there and just have another expensive GPU. I just don't think it's their MO. And I think that's the biggest thing. I think this is obviously, it's very doable. We see external PCIe all the time on PC these days. I've, I've never really used it. I think Rich has though before. Um, and you know it's actually a thing that does exist and it, it works well enough assuming there's enough lanes and the the gpu is good enough for it um i just don't think it's a thing that nintendo would ever do it's just not what they do and i think that's fair though because the cost side of things is extreme if you're worrying about your whole soc and board inside the switch but then you're also doing a second gpu within the dock uh i mean the cost of that is not insignificant right so either, and the only way to make it work is if it were included with every Switch. It couldn't just be an add-on. And I think that would just bump the price up too high and there's no way it would be feasible to them. Yeah, uh, but I don't so, think they're doing yes. that. I mean, if, that, if, this was, if this crazy scheme was to come to pass, it would have to be an add-on because, you know, you're basically doubling uh, the cost of I mean, your most yeah. ex expensive yeah. component. But if it was an add-on, nobody would... Uh, wouldn't do well it would just expansion be... pack style right yeah it yeah would, it would either be expansion pack or like the frankenstick and the 3ds you know where it just people forget oh, yes. about it and it goes away and you know it's just it's a bad idea <laughs> the frankenstick or, or forgot about yeah, that. I i completely forgot about that yeah um, or what about the 3ds 3ds had the new 3ds right significantly more powerful uh barely any game shipped used. for it right yeah. <laughs> I have them all actually. There's there's only like three or four, if I recall, that actually used it. If you have homebrew, you can over, you can actually overclock it for all software, which is cool. But uh, there's this precedent of Nintendo including more powerful hardware in a revision, and then because it's optional, it barely gets used. And I think that's what would happen here. Yeah, I think the bottom line is if you're going to be going to all of the expense to create a dock with a much more capable GPU. It would actually make more sense simply just to make it a home console, which has got um, compatibility with the mobile machine, but it just does everything at higher resolutions and with better graphics. In effect, this kind of segmentation that you see with um, Series X and Series S, the difference being that your Series S equivalent is the handheld device. So that would be the way forward, really, because it would actually gain faction as a home console rather than an optional add-on. But it kind of negates the concept, the switch concept, <laughs> which is to say that you can use it as a as a hybrid device. And um, if the rumors are to be believed and essentially the solution to the to the home console conundrum is DLSS, that's probably a more elegant solution. And it also introduces silicon within the SOC that could be used for other things other than upscaling. So yeah, it's an interesting idea, um, but it's kind of fraught with difficulties, limited commercial viability, 
not particularly mainstream as a proposition. So, uh, yeah, sort of. Well, what if they just made it so you could take that GPU with you? Like it becomes like a giant belt buckle or like you have a strap <laughs> on your shoulder. You just carry your GPU yeah, or, with you. Or what are they, like these VR backpacks? Exactly. They can attach it to like a glove, right? I'm sure like that would be, be like a right mass there. market success. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Fashion statement. <laughs> yeah, uh, I think that answers that one. Interesting, but kind of unviable, really. But I really am looking forward to seeing what they've got lined up for us from, for the next Twitch. Um, let's move on to the next question. This one from The Collector. Are we on the cusp of a new generation of GPUs? Oh, as we are on the cusp of a new generation of GPUs, at least according to the leaks, what are your most wanted new techs that you feel would significantly change the gaming experience, Alex? We've kind of had the new techs, right? Um, yeah, the, the, we've got them since 2018, and I'm very grateful. Yeah. Well, at least, you know, the LSS a lot, a lot of the features have barely longer. been touched, though, really. That's yes. kind of, yeah, that's the point, isn't it? Yeah, it would be nice to see. I think it would be great to see more games shipping with mesh shaders and um, exploring that new avenue. Um, you know, kind of like how Nanite is a breakthrough of its own right. I think there is a there are some interesting mesh shader paths that probably... Uh, it'd be great to see them in games. Um, but other than that, I actually think something that we've talked about tangentially regarding GPUs for a while now is the like the equivalent of um, frame rate interpolation via machine learning uh, of some sort, some way to in a in a GPU limited scenario without referencing anything that the GPU is doing really, so you're decoupled from it have the ability to scale up to like 240, 480, whatever hertz, uh, and have it look reasonable. I think that'd be great. It'd be fun to, uh, you know, like run a game at 60 FPS minimum or something like that, and then have it look a lot closer to 120. I think that'd be a a cool tech. Um, It is surprising that it doesn't exist yet. DLSS is kind of doing that, but it's still CPU limited. What I'm proposing is something that is just like, it's all on your GPU. so uh, that but is something you, I would like. So you're you suggesting that the CPU is still running at full tick, or would that be interpolating? It would. Yeah, the, the CPU would just be running there at the normal 60. And okay. with motion vectors in between frames, the GPU would be generating um, half steps and quarter steps and things like that. That's how I imagine this scenario. Because otherwise, you're just CPU limited. And most games are CPU limited when you get up to like 100 anyway. So it would be so wasteful. That's what I'm thinking. Well, that's an interesting point because um, obviously we've got uh, RTX 4000 series coming and uh, and we do want to see a substantial leap forward there, not just on the hardware side, but also on the software side. And um, obviously with each new generation, it's all about, you know, upticks in performance. And I suspect we're going to get a big uptick in performance, but we also want to see, you know, improved ray tracing, we want to see more from DLSS. John, is there anything you want to see? Oh, absolutely. The big thing I want to see is I want them to move. I want a quad slot GPU that's got <laughs> more HDMI, it's got more display port, it's got analog VGA out, and it's got BNC connectors all on there. Take full advantage of it, go all the way. That's that's my dream right there. BNC connectors. Why not? Yeah. Why not, Do dude? It. Like just go all the way. Or it'd be yeah. like, you know, what they use for SDI and everything. Like, Bring back the USB three. That's what I want to see. Bring it back. I, I want all the connections. In, in all seriousness, no, I would love to see an analog video output return to a modern GPU. It'd be so go- glorious. Like, yeah. It'll never happen, but darn it. 
you know, I there's nothing that. preventing the aftermarket uh, or, or the PC, uh, the, sorry, the, the board partners from oh, doing yeah. that, though, because they have the, you know, they control that stuff. That, exactly. That, somebody it's so should weird do that they don't do it. This deluxe board that has way more outputs and analog outputs as well and just get like like the extreme gamer whatever whatever they want to call it put some crazy character on the box and make it extreme okay not an evil <laughs> well actually the evil commando could stage a dramatic return yeah they could bring Why the not? evil commando back you know <laughs> evil commando creator edition exactly <laughs> okay let's move on to our final question this one from Catherine mckenzie uh, hopping and long loading times will likely be remembered as particularly profound weaknesses in last generation hardware. What sort of weaknesses or shortcomings do you think this generation will be remembered for in the annals of history? Artifacts from temporal effects slash reconstruction or something less foreseeable? What's the absolute longest amount of time I can wait before <laughs> upgrading from my 4690k? Wow, that's that's almost another question in itself, but we yeah. shall tackle it. Um, Alex. Sure. What sort I of think, weaknesses? I think it's the obvious one. It's the ray, ray tracing, tracing thing. Yeah, yeah it's, just, it's like we knew RDNA 2 was not going to be as good at it. And then these are like smaller versions of RDNA 2. So um, I think that's it. Like, uh, uh, you know, other than the... Um, you know, really the titles where they have a lot of time to spend and, you know, make sure that the optimizations are not so visible uh, via art and all these other things. Um, most other titles that have RT, it's going to be obvious that that's like the place where they had to scramble and make things uh, cheaper. Actually, it's basically at the moment, whether this will remain the case as the uh, Lumen and Nanite era looms, you can either have 60 FPS or 30 FPS with ray tracing. I mean, there are yeah. outliers to that, obviously, you know, um, the Insomniac games, for example. But that's mm -hmm. the lie of the land at the moment, isn't it? Yeah, that is. I mean, it's not so surprising uh, in, in the end. I, it would have been cool if they launched with different, uh, like if AMD had different hardware lined up there. That would have been cool. I don't even know if RDNA 3 is going to actually change that. I haven't heard much. I mean, the rumors are one thing, but uh, you Wait, know, I don't... it's already in the PS5 though. RDNA three. <laughs> this is very true. I'm sure that. <laughs> it's in there, so maybe yeah. I, I think that's going to be it, and um, you know, that's that does suck a little bit uh, sometimes because I think like, oh man, it, just imagine if it had an Nvidia chip. Like, what we would be getting now? That man, just imagine DLSS on console. Like, oh boy, that would have been cool. But I, I think that's about it. Other than that, I'm actually pretty happy uh, with this gen of hardware. Um, I'm just curious to see how long developers are going to be targeting 60 versus when they start saying, okay, it's 30 time. Um, that's what I'm wondering. It's the Unreal, it's the specter of Unreal Engine 5, really, isn't it? If they're going to be using Lumen and Nanite. And uh, because the, the CPU, well, that's the kind of remarkable thing, right? Um, the CPU load there is quite astonishing and we kind of went into this uh, generation thinking that the cpu question had been solved um it hasn't really uh, based on unreal engine 5. Uh, john what do you think is going to be the uh, profound weaknesses that will be the legacy of this generation it's less about the visuals and rendering side and more i'm just thinking about long-term uh accessibility of the content i think with 
with the way things are now, the subscription services, you know, incomplete games launching, not that that's not been an issue before, it does make you wonder about accessing this stuff down the road. Um, I, I, I assume most people know what they're getting into, but I, I have to wonder, like, imagine you went and, you know, you buy like a brand new uh, PS5 or Xbox and you only use the subscription service for the entirety of the console. You're paying this money over the years. You spend all that money on the console. And then, you know, years later, you look back and you realize you don't actually own any games and they're all like no longer accessible unless you, you know, subscribe. And even then they might be gone at that point. And, uh, you know, of course, purchasing is still an option and a big deal, but I do have to wonder about that. It is kind of weird to think that somebody could go a whole generation and they, they, they've invested all that time and money into these things and they actually have nothing to show for it except for the, the box at the end. Right. So, well, it's kind of going that way with movies and CDs, isn't it? Sadly, yeah. Yeah. So mm -hmm. I was going to basically ask Alex uh, to tackle the second question. The, the absolute longest amount of time I can wait before upgrading from my 4690K. I would say take a look at uh, when Zen 4 later stuff launches, uh, like that's the latter half of this year. Look at the benchmarks and weigh the cost performance between Intel and uh, AMD there and then upgrade because they're already like the newest Intel, the 5000 series Ryzen is already like really great. They're so good. And um, these are only gonna be better. And they're already, I would say in some areas profoundly faster than what the consoles have. So you would be like set for an entire generation if you did that by far, much like you were with your 4690K for the most part. So that's the way I'd say it. Um, just wait till the Zen 4 release and compare what matches your preferences at that point. Interesting point, because um, I don't think I could play PC games with a 4690K. Yeah. At the moment. Right now, you'd be 30 FPS for you'd a lot of games. You'd be 30 FPS, yeah, for a lot of games. And um, the main issue there, I mean, even if you upgraded to like 4790K, which doubles your thread count, that would actually extend that system life if you know, by quite a margin. <laughs> Um, the main issue at the moment is that games are simply not designed for four threads anymore, which is what the 4690K has, which means that um, it doesn't matter how much you overclock it, you're going to be facing some profound limitations there. So I think, you know, if you want to have a short-term performance boost, something along the lines of the 4790K would actually be offer a dramatic improvement. But in the here and now, I think the best bang for the buck from my perspective would be like uh, um, probably the 12700K from Intel. But you're right, Alex, with Zen 4 just around the corner, there's going to be a lot of competition in that space. And yes, it would be a fantastic time to upgrade, I think. Yeah, I think that, that Rich is right, though. Like that, those new Alder Lake, I think the mid and low range Alder Lake are really competitive and really great. Uh, so maybe if you don't feel like waiting, that's also uh, an upgrade path for sure. But it'd be expensive, you know, because you got the board. You have you probably need a new power supply, by the way, Catherine. <laughs> and it, that would be probably another investment. Then you got the RAM, which is also kind of expensive. So let's just maybe wait a bit. Okay. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, but that's it. That's the end. That's the last question. And uh, that's the end of this show. So if you enjoyed it, please do like, subscribe, share, ring the bell for those notionally instant notifications. No guarantees there. That is my disclaimer. 
and um, DF supporter program. Get involved, join our amazing community, get access to a big bunch of bonus material, phenomenal retro content. And yes, that's it. That is indeed the end. See you next week. Bye bye. Nintendo emerged from hiding with a new DF <laughs> again. DF Direct. DF Direct. <laughs> <New> DF Direct. <laughs>